Okay. So Genesis 18. Uh, I'll read the entire chapter. It's all 33 verses. So give your attention as I read God's word. Then the Lord appeared to him, that is Abraham, by the terebinth tree of Mamre, as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. And he said, My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by on your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by, inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, Do as you have said. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender goat calf, or sorry, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. And they said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, Here in the tent. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me, and if not, I will know. Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood before the Lord. And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were fifty righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abraham answered and said, Indeed, now I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose there were five less than the fifty righteous. Would you destroy all the city for the lack, for lack of five? So he said, If I find there are forty-five, I will not destroy it. 
And he spoke to him yet again and said, Suppose there should be forty found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of forty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose thirty should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find thirty there. And he said, Indeed, now I have taken upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose twenty should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of twenty. Then he said, Let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose ten should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of ten. So the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Okay. So last time we looked at chapter 17, and we've just been trekking along here, uh, looking at the life of Abraham, or Abram. Well, last, last time, uh, a few weeks back, uh, he finally got his name changed. So now he's Abraham, which all that just means now is I'll start calling him Abram because I've got so used to calling him Abram. Uh, but he has his name changed. But um, last time we looked, uh, we saw the, the final step, if you will, in the process of formalizing the covenant that God made with Abraham. He promised it back in Genesis 12. He ratified it by uh, taking upon himself the covenant curses in Genesis 15. And then he gives Abraham in Genesis 17 the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. So, uh, and that's really the entire uh, chapter we see there. The covenant uh, is formalized, and again, uh, the Lord reiterates the promise of Isaac. And some of the material we're going to look at tonight uh, is, in a sense, uh, a repeat from last time, because in that time, Abraham laughed, and now, tonight, we're going to see Sarah laughing. Um, when the, when the promise of the child comes. But uh, the Lord comes and he makes the covenant. He gives um, Abraham the sign of the covenant, circumcision, which uh, in a sense is a sign and a seal that uh, points to the promises of that covenant, which is uh, blessing for obedience and judgment for disobedience. The, the idea there being that this sign of circumcision given to Abraham is tied to the land. Uh, we see that in verse, I believe, 14. Anyone who is not circumcised, that person will be cut off. They have broken the covenant. Uh, so all of this, of course, comes, though, and we need to make sure we're clear on this, all of this comes after Abraham's already been declared righteous. So part of the thing we're going to you know, distinguish here is though the covenant sign is tied to um, living in the land, it is not, uh, it, it, receiving the covenant sign does not mean one is saved. Uh, it is a sign that points to um, the righteousness that, that is uh, granted through faith alone. But again, remember, Abraham was already declared righteous in chapter 15. Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. And then uh, some years later, he's given the sign as a promise of that uh, covenant. So that's what we looked at last time. And now, as we look in chapter 18, uh, the son that was promised is promised yet again, but this time we're going to see it's a little different. Now, 
the Lord comes and actually puts a date on it. He actually says, this will be the time that the child will come. So we're going to see this promise again made. Uh, we're going to see Sarah's laughter. And we're going to see Abraham, uh, his intercession for uh, the residents in Sodom, particularly his nephew, who's still down there. <laughs> uh, and if you remember uh, how Lot, uh, he, he pitched his tent outside of Sodom, then he was in the city, and then by the time you get to chapter 19, he's in the city gates, and he's like already, he's, a, he's taken a, a, an important position in the city. We'll see that, Lord willing, uh, in two weeks when we look at chapter 19. And we'll look at all the, uh, the gory details of chapter 19 there. But here, uh, we're going to see the Lord visit Abraham. The Lord, again, make the promise of Isaac, but this time specifying when this child is coming. And then the, the Lord is going to act, in a sense, on Abraham's behalf. And we'll look at these things as we move on. But uh, first, we're going to look at Abraham's three guests. So we're going to look at Abraham's three guests. We're going to look at Abraham's laughing wife. <laughs> and we're going to look at Abraham's uh, intercession. So first, his three guests in verses 1 through 8. So... We're not told exactly how long after chapter 17, but probably not long at all, uh, not very long, considering that uh, Abraham is already 99 or 100 years old in chapter 17, and he's uh, not going to be that much older in 18 or when Isaac is born. So probably some short amount of time after the events of chapter 17, we see here the Lord visit Abraham. He comes to him. Uh, he appears to him with two others. This is not the Trinity. Okay, <laughs> This is not Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is the Lord with two angelic companions, if you will. Um, so he comes and he visits uh, Abraham. Now, we've seen the Lord visit his people before, right? And the Lord is going to continue to visit his people. Sometimes he does so in a theophany like we see here, where he appears and manifests himself in a physical form. Sometimes it's done through uh, an intermediary in the case of uh, the Lord sending Moses to uh, liberate his people from Egypt. But right before that happens, uh, we are told in Exodus chapter 1 that the Lord heard the cries of his people and he visited them in their in their affliction and, and sends Moses. Um, think about the cycle and the judges. Every time the people fell into sin and were oppressed, they cried out to the Lord and the Lord hears and sends a judge. So you can consider that like a, a visit, if you will. But unlike previous theophanies that we've seen so far, and the Lord has appeared you know, uh, to, to Abraham before, uh, we're not sure how he did so in chapter 17, but we're told that, they, that the Lord appeared to him. Um, here, this appears to take on an actual human form, where the Lord with two angels comes in a human physical form as three visitors, three visitors in human form. Um, other examples of theophanies in which uh, the Lord takes on a human form, uh, just a few chapters ahead in chapter 32, uh, Jacob wrestles with a very mysterious figure. And this figure, it turns out, is the Lord. So Jacob wrestles with the Lord. And that's when Jacob gets his name changed from Jacob the deceiver to Israel, the one who strives or struggles with the Lord. Um, in Joshua 5, we see the commander of the Lord's army. 
So Joshua has been commissioned to take over after Moses has died. Uh, they are in Jer- uh, they're in the promised land. They're on, uh, they're right before Jericho. They're right before they're about to take over the city. And this uh, angelic figure appears. The angel of the Lord appears. He is the commander of the Lord's army. He's decked out in military gear. And jo- Joshua is like, whose side are you on? Are you on our side and the enemies or the enemies? And, and the, the angel says to him, says, that's the wrong question, Joshua. <laughs> uh, it's not whose side I'm on, it's whose side are you on? He says, are you on my side? Are you going to fight with me? Because I am the commander of the Lord's army. Um, even in Judges, Judges chapter 13, uh, the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah to announce the birth of Samson. Um, again, to a woman who had been barren. So you see these visitations of the Lord, and they, a lot of times they seem to come along uh, with the announcement of a special birth, and we'll look at that in a moment. But um, now, most scholars and commentators uh, tend to agree on this, and I do too, uh, is usually when you see these theophanies or these appearances or manifestations of God in physical form in the Old Testament, uh, I take it to be a pre-incarnate uh, manifestation of the second person of the Trinity or the Son of God. Uh, the reason I take that is because it, is the, it seems to be the specific task of the Son to make the Father known. And he also accepts, yeah, that's, that's why we know he's God. Um, but the, specifically, the son's task is to, as the word, right, as John will say, he is the word. He is the one who makes the father known. He is the one who makes God known. So I, I take these to be um, uh, manifestations of the second person of the Trinity or the pre-incarnate son. Now, so these three appear, and... We're not told for certain. I think at this point in time, Abraham is not yet certain that these are uh, angelic or spiritual beings. He just takes them as visitors. Uh, In verse 3 where he says, my Lord, uh, you notice there it's small. Well, it's capital L, small small O, small R, small D. So it's not the covenant name. Well, that would probably be Adonai if it's Lord. Um, sometimes that word means is used for God because uh, Adonai is a, is a title for God, but sometimes it's just like saying, sir, sir, uh, would you, you know, I notice you're out and it's hot outside and I'd like to invite you into my tent and uh, give you a meal. You know, so this is probably just a title of respect. Um, so these three visitors come. It's, uh, you notice it's in the heat of the day. It's real hot. And Abraham's there in his tent, and he sees them. And look, he says in verse 2, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. So uh, this is to show how important hospitality is. We talked a little bit about that in the sermon this morning on, uh, in you know, the 23rd Psalm, how the Lord shows hospitality. And look how... how uh, anxious Abraham his, is here to show hospitality. He realizes it's it's hot outside. Uh, these these three strangers are wandering. And he runs to them and he bows himself. So he, he this is you know ancient Near East uh, hospitality. He bows down and says, "My Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, 
Please do not pass on by. Turn into my tent. Let me give you water and wash your feet and come in and relax and refresh yourself. So that's in verses 3 and 4. He says, now I'm going to bring you some food. This is just typical hospitality. Typical hospitality of this period of time. It was expected of people in those days to offer hospitality to strangers. And everything that Abraham does here is in line with that. Especially considering if you think about the fact that he is, even though he's been promised this land, he at this point in the, in the story does not own a single acre or a square inch of the land yet. So he's a nomad in his own promised land. So he here is showing hospitality. It exp- in a way, it kind of explains his readiness uh, for hospitality. Um, we looked at some of these verses earlier this morning, but Romans 12, 13, uh, Paul uh, says that Christians, part of uh, uh, that idea of being a living sacrifice in Romans 12 is to show hospitality. Uh, that's how you, uh, you show welcome to one another. 1 Peter 4, verse 9 talks about showing hospitality. So hospitality is a very important, uh, biblically speaking, and it is something that was expected of these people, and that's exactly what Abraham is doing here. Now, a couple of uh, things here before we move on, a couple of things of note. As I said, uh, we see these angelic, in particular this theophany, so we see God here coming with two angelic uh, uh, companions, these heavenly visitors. And as in other cases in the Old Testament, in the Bible really, not just the Old Testament, angelic heavenly visitors come to announce the birth of someone special. That's what's going to happen here. The Lord himself is going to promise that Isaac is going to be born, uh, a, he says, uh, what, in the, uh, according to the time of life. According to the time of life. We already mentioned um, the passage in Judges 13 where an angel of the Lord comes and appears to Manoah and his wife and promises um, uh, the coming of Samson. Can we think of any other uh, angelic heavenly visitors that announce the birth of someone special? Well, you have the angel Gabriel. He, now, he gets to announce two births, right? John the Baptist and, of course, uh, Jesus. We see those in Luke chapter 1 where he comes to Zacharias, uh, one of the uh, priests on duty at the time, and he announces that um, his wife, Elizabeth, who's also elderly, advanced in age and beyond childbearing years, that she's going to have a son. Uh, and of course, what is, what is Zacharias' uh, uh, response when he hears that? He's like, really? Are you serious? Elizabeth? <laughs> I love my wife, but come on. <laughs> she's a little old. And then Gabriel says, well, because you didn't believe me, you're going to be struck dumb until the baby's born. And then the angel Gabriel goes again six months later and appears to a young virgin named Mary. Now, she's, of course, not past childbearing age, but her birth is, or the birth that she, the child that she bears is a miracle child because it is one that is conceived by the Holy Spirit, as we say in the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So we see these, this seems to be a, a theme in the Bible that angelic heavenly visitors come and announce a special birth. Um, But 
also notice how God comes as a friend, as a friend of Abraham. The Lord doesn't have to do this, right? The Lord doesn't have to come in a, in a physical form and visit Abraham and sit down and have a meal with him. Think about that for a moment, right? You know, again, we were talking about this in Psalm 23 earlier this morning, how the Lord sets a table before us. Now, that's David speaking poetically. This is actually literally happening in history where God comes down in a human form and comes up to Abraham and says, let's have a meal together. That blows my mind. I'm sorry. That just blows my mind. The, the God of the heavens who created the heavens just 17 chapters earlier spoke it into existence, who created Abraham out of the dust of the earth, says, I'm going to have a meal with you, Abraham. And we see this in uh, other places in the Bible. Um, Isaiah 41, verse 8, Abraham is called a friend of God. Abraham is called a friend to God. In Isaiah 41, verse 8, uh, the prophet there says, speaking on behalf of the Lord, but you, Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. And Jacob, Israel, uh, oftentimes in prophetic literature, they're synonymous. they just two ways of calling the, the people of God. Uh, Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend. My friend. Not too, not too many people are actually biblically called the friend of God. Now, I know it says that of Moses, he spoke to him as a friend face to face, right? That's why Moses was special. Uh, Abraham was also special. He is actually called here uh, the friend of God. And in John's gospel, in chapter uh, 14 of John's Gospel. We keep, keep going back to John's Gospel. I think he's like, I thought we were done with John's Gospel. We were never done, we were never done with John's. That's, that's true. In John's Gospel, uh, chapter 14, uh, starting in verse 23, Jesus, of course, talking to his disciples in the upper room, says there, uh, after Judas, not Iscariot, we've got to make sure we get our Judases right because there's two of them, not the bad one. He said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? That's verse 22. Verse 23, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Think about that. That's in a sense what, what God is doing here with Abraham. Right? He is coming to him. He's visiting him. Later on in chapter 15, uh, verse 13, where Jesus there says, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. And he says to his disciples, And you are my friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my Father I have made known to you. Friends of God. I mean, in a sense, then, because of that, we are, by extension, all friends of God. But here, then, another passage, uh, James chapter 2, verse 23, there also speaks about Abraham as a friend of God, if I'm not mistaken. And scripture, uh, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. 
So Abraham here is the friend of God. God comes to him. God condescends to come to him and have a meal with him and to share this time of fellowship with him. Now, hospitality, again, is a very, uh, it's very Christian. It's very biblical, all right? Hospitality is very uh, biblical. Again, we saw in Psalm 23, 5, where the Lord, uh, who is our host, sets a table uh, for us in the presence of our enemies and invites us to come and, and, and puts forth this lavish feast for his people. Uh, those who come out, those who have been led by him and have come out of the valley of the shadow of death come and they see a table, a lavish table where then the Lord comes and he does what Abraham is doing here. He comes out and anoints your head with oil and he gives you a cup that overflows so that you can enjoy his hospitality. That's exactly what Abraham is doing here. Hospitality is a very Christian thing. I'm referenced this earlier, but I didn't look at the passage, but in Luke chapter 14, um, here uh, Jesus uh, was invited to someone's home, and, um, and I believe this is uh, Luke 14, verse 7, so he told the parable, actually, uh, verse, verse 1 of chapter 14, he was invited into one of the Pharisees' homes. And then later on in uh, verse 12 of chapter 14, he says, Then he said to him who invited him, When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So there what Jesus is saying is, Hospitality is not for being invited back, right? You know, you, that's, how, that's how we do gifts, and that's how we do, uh, you know, oh, you invited me over, we've got to invite you over. You know, or, oh, you got me a gift, or you paid for the check at dinner that time, I'll get it next time. Right? No one likes to be in anyone's debt. And Jesus is saying here, look, if you do that, if you invite the rich and the wealthy and the powerful, well, they'll just return the favor to you. When you invite a feast, when you have a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the blind, the lame. Why? Because they can't repay you. And that's exactly what the Lord is doing when he invites us to his feast. We're the poor, we're the blind, we're the lame, we're the maimed. We're the ones who cannot pay the Lord back for his hospitality. Hospitality is a very Christian thing. And I mentioned this uh, this morning, Hebrews 13, verse 2, says, show hospitality because in showing hospitality, you may have entertained angels. You never know who you're entertaining. You never know who walks into your church or who you invite into your home. Uh, you know, I heard there was a, I can never remember the name of the band who made this song, but uh, it, was, it was kind of a critique of a, uh, of a mindset in the church at the time. And uh, the song goes, you know, if Jesus walked into your church, would he be welcome? Yeah, <laughs> because Jesus would not look like somebody wealthy or powerful. That's, that's how he appeared in, in human form, at least. Of course, when Jesus returns, he's going to be glorious. Okay, we're, we know that. But when Jesus appeared in his first incarnation, he was no one special, right? That's the whole point. He had no form or beauty that we should consider him worthy to look at. Just like just a normal Joe, or maybe just a normal 
Joseph or a, <laughs> a normal uh, uh, Joshua or something. <laughs> you know, just a normal looking dude. He was no one special to look at. And uh, in fact, you know, think about it. Where was he born? He was born in, you know, in the sticks. You know, the, you know, we need to be all about hospitality. That's 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 one of the things here. Opening your home, sharing a meal speaks of love and fellowship. Uh, that, I mentioned that earlier. I just didn't read the verse, but yeah, um, yeah. The um, there's an author. Her name is Rosaria Butterfield. I may have mentioned her name before. And uh, the, what's amazing about her story. Um, First of all, I mean, any conversion is amazing, so let's, let's put that out there. Uh, but what's particularly interesting about her story is that um, she was a, uh, a distinguished uh, literature professor uh, in, a, in a, like an Ivy League school. So she had all the world's credentials, and, but then she was also sort of like a hardcore lesbian feminist, okay? And she was converted by the hospitality of a Christian minister who invited her into her home and just showed her Christian love and, and hospitality. And she eventually converted, she got married, and they have kids. And she said one of the things that was attractive about the LGBT community was their hospitality toward one another. She writes this in a book called uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And one of the things she said about the community is it's hospitality. You think about it. It's like, okay, if you're a part of a, of a subset of, of the population that is, you know, at least considered on the outskirts. I mean, now we know it's kind of being promoted, but back then it would have been a little more, you know, you wouldn't maybe have been so public about it. And if you were being persecuted about it, yeah, you'd probably kind of, you know, gather together and circle, you know, circle the wagons, if you will. Uh, she said it was, that was one of the things that was attractive about it. But when she saw that this Christian minister showing her, you know, outrageous love and hospitality, it, it started to work in her and the spirit started to use that to work in her. So again, think, you know, Hebrews 13 too, when you invite somebody over, you never know who you're inviting over, right? You know, and, and don't invite those who can return the favor. That's the point. Uh, the new heavens and the new earth are pictured as a great wedding feast to which God invites us to, right? You know, the whole idea of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Um, it is, and I think it's something, at least, maybe not here, but certainly in larger urban and suburban churches. I, I've been in those kind of churches. My wife and I have been in those kind of churches. And building a community is very hard in those, in those settings. It's very hard because you don't live close to each other, um, particularly if you're in a suburban setting like we were. Um, the church, one of the ch churches we were a member of, the church was in a town in which no one who was a member of that church lived in that town. <laughs> the pastor lived in that town, but no member of the church lived in that town. They came from all, I mean, now you have to understand, this is not like, here, where the t you know you got a town, and then you have to go like eight or ten miles, and then you get the next town, and maybe ten miles or twenty miles in the next. I mean, there the suburbs all kind of blur together. It's just like one big blob. But the point is, no one had an address in the city in which the church was in. 
And a lot of us were 20 or 30 minutes away from the church. Kind of, it felt like that was like in the middle of a, of a spoke of wheel, you know, where, where everyone was kind of equidistant from the church. That's just the kind of thing it was. And then you go to even bigger mega churches, and you know, you ne- almost never see the people except on Sunday mornings. Um, community is a hard thing to build in, in bigger setting like that. But we can kind of lose sight of that here too. Uh, particularly because we're so familiar with one another, you know. So, hospitality, you know, something that uh, you know we could always be better at. All right. So now verses nine through fifteen. So, another thing to notice here is notice how Abraham is sort of like hovering around the guests too. Um, at the end of verse eight, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. <laughs> Yeah, you know, now if you've ever been in a restaurant, right, and you're trying to eat and the waiter comes every five seconds, it's like, how's the meal? How's the thing? Can I get you more water? You know, do you, is everything okay? You're just like, yes, just let me eat. Okay, yeah, that's kind of how we go. But Abraham's just there. He's like, can I get you some more water? It's like, can I refresh your lamb? You know, can you, would you like some more, you know, cakes? I can go get my wife. She can make some more, you know, rice cakes or whatever. He's there like a, he's like a waiter waiting to serve them. And then in verse 9, they say to him, where is Sarah, your wife? Now, at first, it may seem like an odd question. First of all, I, I, I would, you know, presumably, you know, he mentions that he's married to someone named Sarah. But it just, it just feels like it's an odd question. Why would they ask that? Now, again, I, I, I may have mentioned this in sometimes past, but we're going to see here in this passage, particularly in the later verses, a lot of what I call, well, I don't call them this, this is what they're called, um, anthropomorphisms. You know, like, say that ten times fast. Ten times fast. Um, or that, 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 that. <laughs> you get it? See, so say that ten times fast. Okay, sorry. <laughs> Anthropom- <laughs> anthropomorphisms. It's, um, in other words, you are using language. Yeah, that's, that's the kind of humor I have. Uh, you're using language to speak of something in a human way, okay? Um, we, we're going to see this a little bit later where, uh, you know, the Lord says, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing, this inner monologue, and then he, where he goes down to see uh, the evil in Sodom. It, he's the Lord, okay? He's omniscient. He doesn't need to see. This is for our benefit. It's to describe what the Lord is doing in a way that is real for us. Hebrew is a particularly descriptive language in this way. So um, when he asks, where is Sarah, your wife? It's almost as if like when God says to Adam in the garden, where are you? Does he, do you really think he doesn't know where Adam is? If this is the Lord, do you really don't think he knows where Sarah is? This is just... He's, in a sense, making conversation with, with Abraham, too. It's like, where is Sarah, your wife? So he says, here in the tent. Now, he, notice it doesn't say, okay, call her out so I can tell her something. But presumably, the Lord says this in a way so that Sarah can hear. Because this conversation is for her benefit, okay? This is for her benefit. And he says in verse 10, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And then, in my Bible, it's parenthetical. And Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Okay. 
Where's Sarah, your wife? Oh, she's in the tent. Oh, wait, I heard my name. Sarah goes and she's at the tent. Maybe she's got like a little glass against the, the wall of the tent uh, listening. And, and the Lord says, I will return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife shall have a son. She's like, what? Did I hear that right? I'm going to have a son? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Look, I'm old. I'm 90-some years old. Therefore, Sarah laughed. Now Abraham and Sarah were old. How old? Well, older, old enough. Abraham was probably 100, and she would have been around 90. Well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. Therefore, Sarah laughed within her, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old, old also? So again, this is spoken in a way for Sarah's benefit. And this is spoken, in a sense, directly to Sarah to let her know that she will be the vehicle through which this child of promise will come. Now, we saw this last, last time. But this is something that the Lord told Abraham. He said, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And then he laughs. This is for Sarah's benefit. This is for Sarah to hear that she is going to be the one to bear the child of promise. Now, if you remember when we looked at chapter 16, the whole uh, Ishmael incident, that's what we'll just call it, the Ishmael incident. Sarah knew that the Lord had promised Abram a son, but she was probably thinking, maybe I'm not the one to deliver the son, so let's see if we can help this thing along. Here's Hagar, my slave. So she thought that maybe the promise was specifically to Abraham and not to her. Well, here the Lord comes and personally delivers the news for her to hear. No, she will bear the son. Sarah, your wife, will, bear, will, will have a son. Now this is, this is again, if, as God condescends to come and visit Abraham, as God condescends and calls Abraham his friend and accepts his hospitality here, now he comes and condescends to bring this news personally to Sarah. He could have appeared in a burning bush. He could have you know, planted the idea in her head, but he makes this personal. Again, remember, our God is a personal God. He comes and he speaks, he visits, he, he hears, he listens, he sees. He comes and he speaks to her. He says, you will have a son. Not only that, but as we mentioned earlier, the Lord finally puts a date, right? All the other times he's promised Abraham that he would have children. He says, your descendants will be as, multi, you know, as many as the stars in the sky or as many as the sand in the, sea, uh, the seashore. And Abraham's probably thinking, well, when's that going to happen? It's like, uh, you told me that 25 years ago. You told me that 13 years ago. You told me that 10 years ago. You told me... <laughs> It's like, you told me that a year ago. It's like, uh, when is this happening? It's going to happen according to the time of life. Nine months. It's going to happen. This is something concrete. This is something that you can take to the bank now. Because now you can test the Lord on this, right? According to the time of life. Presumably childbearing time. Nine months. So if this child does not come, in fact, if this doesn't come in a few months and you don't start seeing it, now you know. It's like, okay, well, you know, now maybe the Lord can't keep his promises. So this is something concrete. Now, Paul will cite this verse here. Verse 10 and also verse 14 in Romans chapter 9, particularly verse 9. We're not going to look at it, but in that chapter, the whole point of that discussion that Paul's having there is to show 
that it is God who works salvation. And he does so through his means, through his chosen instruments. In this case, uh, Abraham was called. And in, in, it wasn't through Ishmael, but it was through Isaac, the child of promise. And then in case you, you know, wanted to say, well, you know, you know, maybe it's because you know, Isaac was born of Sarah, the, the, the preferred wife. Okay, well, the next one is going to be Jacob and Ishmael, or Jacob and Esau. Same parents, same mom, same dad, twins, born at the same time, before any of them had done anything. I'm going to choose Jacob. So the line goes from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. In other words, God is the one who fulfills promises, not us. God is the one who brings salvation, not us. Isaac is going to be the vehicle through which Christ will come, not Ishmael. So, in other words, God is going to work this. He's like, I don't need your help. <laughs> right? Your thing, I, I will bless your thing because I'm a gracious God. Ishmael will be blessed. He will have a large family. He will give birth to 12 princes. He will be a mighty man. But he is not going to be in the line of promise. He is not going to be the one who's going to uh, be in this, uh, this chosen line. It is God who fulfills promises, not us. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Now Sarah hears this, and she laughs, just like Abraham did last time. He laughed when he heard this. Because they're thinking, physically, right? It's like, we're old. If you, if you cut my arm off, you can count the rings. I've got a lot of rings in my arm here. Uh, this, this, is, uh, this is not something that, can, that uh, norm would happen. And so Sarah laughs too. And uh, just so you know, I did the, the work in the Hebrew here. The word for laugh, it's sahak. And the word for Isaac, it's yitzahak. So it's a, again, it's, it's, it's a variation of laughter. But you know, again, why wouldn't, why wouldn't Sarah laugh? Again, she looks at her body. I'm 90 years old. I am well past childbearing years. Abraham is already old. He's 100. This is ridiculous. This is ridiculous. Again, Luke 1.18. Zachariah says Elizabeth is old. She can't bear children. We looked at these passages last time. Romans 4.19, when Paul is talking about the faith of Abraham, he says, in Abraham, well, you know, he's old, and Sarah's old too. And, and, and then we looked at uh, Hebrews, and by faith, Abraham, even when they're old, you know, and didn't think that they could bear children. You know, here comes Isaac. Now the Lord confronts Sarah's unbelief. But notice he, he talks to Abraham. <laughs> it's like, did I just catch laughter in the tent? <laughs> uh, why, did you, why did Sarah laugh, saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? And then verse 14, is anything too hard for the Lord? When, uh, when God appeared to Abraham in chapter 17, what does he call himself there? Chapter 17, verse 1. I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. I am the God who can do anything. There is nothing too hard for me. When he asked that question, that is probably 
the most rhetorical question I've ever heard, okay? <laughs> I mean, I, if you give me some time, I might be able to think of another one, but, you know, in the Bible, that is probably the most rhetorical of rhetorical questions. Is anything too hard for the Lord? What's the answer to that question? No, nothing is too hard for the Lord. Of course he can do this, and that's what he's, he's confronting Sarah's unbelief. It's like, and, and now, if they didn't know it was the Lord, they know now, okay? I mean, they certainly know by now. Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. You can mark this. It's not too many times that God comes out and says, test me on this. Test me on this. Right? You get that in Malachi. Test me on this. Will I not open the stores of heaven and rain blessing down upon you? Bring the tithes into the storehouse and test me on this. Here he's saying the same thing. Have faith, Abraham. Have faith, my friend. I will come at the appointed time and Sarah will bear a son. She shall have a son. Then Sarah's like, I didn't laugh. It's <laughs> like, yeah, you, you laughed. So, <laughs> it's like, but that's okay. It's like, I'm not going to strike you dead. Right? <laughs> What's yeah, probably. Yeah. The line of promise. The line of promise will come through Isaac, not Ishmael. This will be the result of God's miraculous power, not our fleshly desire. And, and again, you know, do not miss this, right? You know, the New Testament makes a great deal of this, right? Who are the true children of Abraham? They're the ones born of promise. The ones who are born not of flesh, Right? but the ones who are born of faith, the ones who are born again. And is that something we can do? No. <laughs> right? Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. Can, can the Lord make sons of Abraham out of the stones in the ground? Yes. <laughs> and the Lord can cause us to be born again. Those who are of faith are the true children of Abraham. And that's, in a sense, what is being shown here and pictured here in the Old Testament, because the New Testament will make hay of that, a lot of hay of that. That is, through Isaac, who is the child of promise, the one who shouldn't have been born. He is the one who is going to bring forth the Savior. And our laughter, and just as Sarah's laughter and Abraham's laughter, every time they laugh, again, I can just think it now, every time they laugh, it's like a reminder of this child. And every time we laugh, it is a reminder that God is the one who not only makes promises, but keeps them. And we should, like the Father in Mark 9, verse 9, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief, right? Because we all have that gap in our faith, so we need the Lord to help us there. All right, finally, we're going to look at verses 16 through 33. It's a, it's a longer section, but you know, most of it is uh, Abraham kind of bartering with God. I don't want to call it bartering, but interceding in how he brings you know, 50. How about, do I hear 45? How about 30? How about 25? 20? 10? Okay, we'll stop at 10. <laughs> but uh, he's now going to intercede. So now, and like I said, this next section and like the whole chapter really, as I said, is loaded with these anthropomorphisms or these, this language of accommodation to describe God to us in ways that we can understand. So we see in verse 16, the men uh, stood and they looked towards Sodom and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord says, um, 
Uh, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing, since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have known him, in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they may keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. So here we have this inner monologue. So, uh, supposedly, uh, the two angelic companions are uh, sent to see. We see that in verse 21. I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. Then the men, verse 22, turned away from there and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood uh, still stood before the Lord. So the, the angels are sent to, as God's emissaries, to see, quote-unquote, the wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then the Lord, of course, as I said here, considers whether or not to let Abraham in on his plans, verses 17 and 18. And note, too, the reference uh, that God here says, particularly in verse 18, that references back to the promises he made to him in chapter 12. It says, Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. That's what he promises him in chapter 12. So now the Lord here consulting Abraham in on his plans regarding Sodom and Gomorrah, that is also, in a sense, if you will, a condescension. God doesn't have to confide in Abraham's uh, the, the plans here. Um, in fact, you know, what, is, what does Paul say in Romans 11.34, uh, quoting from Isaiah 40.13, where he says, you know, who will be my counselor, right? You know, where he's talking about the mighty awesomeness of God. It's like, who is his counselor? Again, no one. Why? Did I put consulting? Yeah, I did. Okay. I think he's testing him here. Is probably yeah, it's probably a better word. Um, yeah. So the Lord here, whether or not to bring Abraham in on what he is planning, as I said, is a condescension, and again, it shows his friendship toward him that he would actually condescend to talk about this. So we see here, he says, the, the, uh, where does he say it? Uh, verse 21, or verse 20, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great because their sin is very grave. Uh, just as in chapter 4, when Cain killed his brother Abel, God comes to Cain and says, the blood of your brother cries out to me. You know, and if the blood of Abel cries out to God, imagine what the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is probably shouting at, a, at an, un, an unholy decibel range. It cries out to God. Their sin was very grave. Uh, thir- chapter 13, verse 13 talks about the wickedness of Sodom. This is years before. Their sin is very grave. Uh, the word there is... Um, it's actually, it's interesting because it's the word that is often used for glory, kavod. It's heavy. Their sin is very heavy. <laughs> it's massive. It's, it's weighty. Their sin is extraordinarily weighty. Now, just a couple of things to note regarding this and regarding what we're going to see, uh, Lord willing, in two weeks uh, with Sodom and Gomorrah. God still judges sin. Okay? Um, you know, he, his wrath was not exhausted during the flood. 
uh, as we said, you know, the flood, which was a pointer to, um, you know, the New Testament uses that as an, as an example, as an illustration of what the end time judgment will be. Um, the flood did not exhaust his wrath. Because as we saw, as people began to populate again, they began to sin again. Babel was a perfect example of that. And the Lord came and judged Babel by confusing the language. Well, here he's going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah by raining fire down upon them because of their sin. Uh, the, we'll look at the depravity of their sin next time, but it, it's, it's gross. It's, it's a catalog of all the bad things. Right? All the bad things that when the uh, people of Israel are about to conquer the land, the Lord uh, in the Torah says to Moses, you know, he judges all these sins. He says, don't do what the people in the, in the land are doing, because that's what they're doing, and I don't want you to do it. Um, you know, and he was waiting for the sin of the Amorites to be complete. But here, the Lord hears the outcry of the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's very heavy. It's very weighty. It's very grave. So God will judge sin. And again, this idea of the language of going down to sea, again, very reminiscent of Babel, because that's exactly what happened in Babel, chapter 11, where God says, I will go down and I will see. It's not, again, it's not that he doesn't already know the sin, it's just, it's, it's talking about God in a way that makes it very uh, tangible for us to, to, to understand. It's like, you know, God is taking a very special interest in what's going on in Sodom because he's going to rain judgment upon them. But also what Abraham's about to do as he intercedes is based on his faith and understanding of God's uh, nature. And we'll look at this uh, right now because Abraham's intercession and that's exactly what this is. It's an intercession. He's interceding for them. Uh, is, it is based on what he knows about God. Look at verse 25. Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So all of Abraham's intercession on this part is based on his knowledge that the Lord of all the earth will do right. He is a righteous judge. He is a holy judge. He is a, a good judge. He will not, the, the point is, he will not slay the righteous with the wicked. He will not send indiscriminate judgment. And Abraham's intercession is based on this. So after the angels have left, right, verse 22, the men turned away and went towards Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. This is a posture, again, of intercession. He is, in a sense, an intercessor is one who stands between. And here is Abraham. He's standing before, again, it's a theophany, so it's not the Lord in all of his glory, but he's standing before the Lord between him and Sodom, and he begins to intercede. And, this, and part of Abraham's blessing to the nations, right? That's what he says earlier. Abraham shall be a blessing to the nations. Part of his blessing to the nations here is seen in his intercession for them. Because he's not just praying for the righteous. He's praying that spare the city on behalf of the righteous. Because there's righteous there. Don't destroy the city. You know, it would be easier to say, can you just rain fire down on those in that quadrant over there and, and leave you know, the righteous over here alone? No, he's like, he's, he's praying for the city on behalf of the righteous. So he, his intercession is, 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 is here as he intercedes for them. 
Um, also, we see prayer as a means of grace, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But a couple of notes here, four things about Abraham's intercession. First of all, as we said, it's done in faith. It's done from the posture that he understands that, yes, the Lord is the righteous judge who will, who will not slay the wicked with the righteous or the righteous with the wicked. He will do what is right. So it is done in faith. It is persistent. Is Abraham not persistent here? <laughs> will you slay it for the sake of 50? No, I will not slay it for the sake of 50. Will you slay it for the sake of 45, 40, 35, 30? You know, I feel like, you know, a running back going toward the goal line. The 45, the 30, the 30, the 25, you know. So it's persistent. He is bold, right? His prayer is not... not Arrogant, he's bold, right? As he says, "If I have found favor, um, I, or I dare to, to, I've taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Um, oh, let me, Lord, not be angry, and I will speak once more." You know, he is he is persistently praying. He is praying with boldness, but he's also humble about it. He says, "I'm dirt. I'm like I am dust and ashes. I've taken it upon myself to pray to the Lord." Jesus picks up on this in the New Testament, particularly in Luke's gospel. I like the way Luke a lot of times does his parables because his parables, a lot of his parables are negative, and then they are speaking of the Lord to show it's like, well, just as this negative thing, you know, just as this, this kind of not-so-good guy did this thing, how much more then will the Lord do that? So there's this parable that Jesus tells in Luke 16 about the wicked judge and about a widow who is, who is uh, persistently nagging this wicked judge for justice. Give me justice. Give me justice. And the judge is like ignores her, ignores her until finally he's like, all right, all right. Not because I care about this widow. I just want to have a good night's sleep. I am tired of this woman at my door knocking. I will give her justice. And then Jesus says, how much more? Your father, who's not like this wicked judge, will he hear your prayers? Be persistent in your prayer. Continue to pray. Praying is a means of grace. So do so in faith. Do so persistently. Do so boldly, yet also humbly. Now, prayer doesn't change. Doesn't change God's mind. Okay. It's not like God was going to destroy them and then, oh, well, he prayed for them. Now I guess i got to change my mind. No, but God uses prayer as a means to accomplish his will. Okay? He uses prayer as a means to accomplish his will. This whole passage is meant to point to Abraham's favored status as a friend of God. God acts on his behalf. If God were to find 10 people there, he would spare the city. Now, of course, we know that there's not 10 people there, right? He goes all the way down, and then, you know, God cuts the conversation short after 10. He's like, okay, we're done here. <laughs> and Abraham's like, yeah, okay, <laughs> uh, I think I may have pushed it as far as I could push it here. Um, incidentally, side note, uh, some scholars uh, believe this is why uh, it is believed that in order to start a synagogue, you had to have 10 men because of this passage here. But uh, whether that's true or not uh, kind of makes sense. But again, this point, the point of this passage is to show Abraham's favored status. Not only did God visit him, 
Not only did God again reiterate his promise and put a time stamp on it, but here God uh, uh, condescends to, to act on Abraham's behalf, even though, again, he doesn't have to. But again, part of this is all about working out his plan. And again, as it pertains to prayer, it's easy for us to lose heart and give up, right? We don't see, oftentimes we don't see a lot of answers to our prayers in the timing that we want them to. Again, be persistent, be humble, pray in faith, be bold, do not give up. Abraham went boldly before God's throne of grace to ask for grace in his time of need. And Abraham showed himself to be a blessing to the nations by praying for the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. Likewise, we are to pray for our enemies, right? That's what Jesus says in Matthew 5, verses 43 to 47. Pray for your enemies. Pray for your enemies. Love your enemies. Pray for them. Uh, Romans 12, 14, where he says, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. But here, I think more importantly, Abraham shows that we all need an intercessor. Abraham acts as an intercessor on behalf of Lot and behalf of the residents of Sodom and Gomorrah, and he intercedes with God just as Abraham just as Abraham stood before the Lord. We need someone to stand before the Lord for us, right? We need an intercessor. We need someone to intercede for us, and that's exactly what Jesus does. He is the great intercessor um, in Romans eight. Verse 34, I've just got a few passages here and we'll be done. Romans 8, 34, the great uh, end of Romans 8, where here Paul says, Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. The Lord is our intercessor. And if anyone brings a charge against the Lord's elect, Christ is there at the right hand of God the Father to say, that is one for whom I died. That is one whose sins I paid for. He is mine. And the Father says, innocent. Innocent. Charges dismissed. This one is innocent. Why? Because he is covered with the blood of my son. Hebrews 7.25, another great passage talking about Jesus, our great high priest. What does a high priest do in the Old Testament? He intercedes. He intercedes for God's people. What does Jesus do as a great high priest? Well, Romans or Hebrews 7.25, Therefore he is able to save to the uttermost, to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Why is the ascension of Christ to the Father's right hand so important? Because he makes intercession for us. He always lives to make intercession for us at the right hand of God the Father. One more passage. 1 John chapter 2. John writes his letter. He says in 1 John chapter 2 verse 1, I write these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay. I don't want you all to sin. But guess what? <laughs> We're going to sin. <laughs> right? If you do sin, if anyone sins, we have what? An advocate, an intercessor, a lawyer. 
with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Jesus Christ is our advocate. He is our intercessor. He is at the right hand of God the Father. If we sin, we have one who is there before the Father, one who is paid for our sins, one who has propitiated our sins, one who has turned away God's wrath for us. So just as Abraham interceded for, for Sodom and Gomorrah, Jesus thankfully intercedes for us day and night, always living to make intercession for us.